You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, and this morning we're looking together at Acts chapter 12. And we'll be reading together the first five verses. This is going to be on page 920 of the Pew Bible. 920. And we're going to read verses 1 through 5 out of chapter 12. Hear the word of God. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Well, the closing scene of chapter 11, you'll remember, was in Antioch, where the disciples were first called Christians. Paul and Barnabas were busy at work, training a great many people. And in response to a prophesied famine, the believers sent relief to the believers in Jerusalem. And it was a generous expression of a living faith in the Lord Jesus, because faith without good works is dead, as we concluded, as James teaches us. True faith is always accompanied by good works, by obedience. And it is a high privilege to bear the name of Christian And it comes with great responsibilities. So now this scene shifts back to Jerusalem where Herod is persecuting believers. Now this is Herod Agrippa I, who was the grandson of Herod the Great. Interestingly enough, his father, Aristobulus, was assassinated by his grandfather. So Agrippa was sent off to Rome to be raised, and he grew up among the aristocracy there, and his friendships were those that elevated him eventually to king. One of his most infamous friends was Caligula, who was instrumental in bringing him to power. But even with friends in high places, Agrippa needed to curry favor with the Jews. So it comes as no surprise that he began to persecute the Church of Christ. Luke tells us that Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. James was the son of Zebedee, one of the original 12 apostles. And in fact, he was one of Christ's inner circle, privy to the most intimate details of our Lord's life. He witnessed the transfiguration and he witnessed the raising of Jairus' daughter. And he was also related to Jesus because his mother, Salome, was Mary's cousin. This man was killed. 
In seeking to ingratiate himself with the Jews, Herod persecuted him and the church, and he tried to strike a fatal blow by doing away with all of its leadership. In the Roman world, being put to death with the sword means decapitation. That's what happened. The ancient writer Clement described James's capital trial. He said that the accuser who had brought accusations against James before the authorities witnessed the trial, and he was moved by the courage and composure, composure of James. And so as James was led to execution, the man himself, the accuser, professes Christ. <laughs> and he too was condemned. And as they went, he asked James for forgiveness. And the apostles said to him, Peace be to thee, brother. And he kissed him. And in A.D. 36, both of them were beheaded. And when this pleased the Jews, Herod arrested Peter, hoping to score big. The apostle was placed in prison. He's guarded by four squads of soldiers. And his execution was planned, though it was delayed, because it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Passover, one of the high days of the Jewish calendar, was connected to the feast. So Herod wanted to wait until the pilgrims would swell the population of Jerusalem because he wanted a larger audience to witness his zeal for the Jewish religion. But the execution could not be on a holy day since it would profane the Passover so Peter was under heavy guard, waiting the death sentence to be carried out. Sixteen Roman soldiers were keeping watch over him in prison. And every three hours throughout the night, the guards had to be changed. And what is noteworthy in these first five verses, I believe, is the response of the church. Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. They neither petitioned the king, nor started a riot, nor stormed the prison. What the church did almost instinctively was to go in prayer to God. Together at the throne of grace, they interceded for the apostle Peter. And here we see the church using the most powerful weapon of prayer, Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 to put on the whole armor of God, and then he concludes praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So here we find that Peter may have been sleeping, but the church was wide awake in prayer. On one side, you have the power of Rome. On the other side, you have the prayers of the church. The devil and his instruments versus the Lord Jesus and his bride. And it's a reminder, I think, of that enmity that's between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Enmity is the unrelenting cause of all the persecutions throughout the ages. The world scoffs, but the church knows the great power of prayer, or at least she should know. One commentator said it would have been easier for Herod to have controlled the winds of heaven than to have neutralized the prayers of these poor people. And I believe it can be argued credibly that prayer is the greatest privilege known to man. The greatest. First of all, it is a blood-bought privilege, as we say so often from this pulpit. 
secured by Jesus in his death on the cross. That's the only reason we can pray. But then also, if communication is the essence of friendship, then those who pray are friends of God. Of course, as Jesus told us in the passage read earlier, Christians prove that they're his friends by doing what he commands. But the essence of friendship is communication. I think Matt said that this morning in Sunday school. Slaves can obey their masters and yet not be the master's friend. But the essence of it is knowing the person. It requires this exchange. So communication, prayer, is the essence of friendship with God. Jesus said, look, no longer do I call you servants. For the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. Because all that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. Communication. He would not keep them in the dark. He would not treat them as servants. The Lord Jesus faithfully conveyed to them what he received from the Father. He revealed everything that you and I need to know for our edification and salvation. He opened up his mind. He opened up his heart to those whom he called friends. That's an incredible thing. McLaren says, the prince makes a friend of the beggar. Slaves are told what to do in the present, but friends, they're told what might happen in the future. In ancient Greek society, a slave was considered nothing more than a living tool. The master never opened his mind to the slave. He simply told him what to do. He was given no explanation. He was given no rationale. He had nothing else but duty to motivate him. And he might see what the master does, but he was not entitled to the master's purpose. He simply received the command without knowing his master's plan. But by contrast, a friend has the privilege of knowing the thoughts and the plans of his friend. There is between them a collegiality, a companionship, a partnership, if you will. And in the closest of friendships, you know this as well as I do, in the closest of friendships, you do not withhold your inmost thoughts. You're transparent. And I want you to tell me what could be greater than to be called the friend of God Almighty. You know, you and I consider it a privilege to have a friend in some high place, some famous person, perhaps. We see them at a rally or we go to a conference and what do we want to do? Get a selfie taken with them. And somehow that kind of association seems to elevate our own importance. And this is what motivates the name dropper, right? He lets you know who he knows. Well, no Old Testament title excelled in dignity than that that was given to Abraham, friend of God. Because he believed God, he enjoyed that peculiar intimacy with God. And what an honor that was to have God's favor and friendship. 
In seasons of danger and confusion, God's friendship assured him of comfort. His ever wakeful eye focused upon the saint, the object of his love. You know, in 62 years, there's something about our creation I never knew. Rich told me that only one side of our moon ever faces our direction. Did you know that? I never knew that. As it orbits the earth, it slowly turns so that the light side always looks at us. One rotation of the moon takes as much time as one revolution around the earth. And no one ever sees the dark side of the moon, ever. And that's a special work of God. And he and I surmised that God does that to teach us about his fatherly care. Just as the moon always faces us, so the father always has his eye upon us. Always willing to listen. Always willing to have us open up our souls to him. That was incredible. And since communication is the essence of friendship, the greatest privilege is prayer. In his inspired, infallible word, God has revealed his mind and his heart. And as we engage in prayer, we open up our minds and we pour out our hearts. There is this deep spiritual communion that takes place in the exchange. And it's true friendship. It's true friendship with God. And if it had not been revealed in the scriptures, who could have imagined it? Think of how unworthy we are. Think of how infinitely beneath him we are. And stooping to our finite level, he demonstrates infinite condescension. And he tells us that he's willing to hear our prayers as his children whenever we're ready to offer them, anytime. And he invites us to pray without ceasing, to constantly enjoy this privilege. And I believe this text mentions four aspects of prayer that I think are especially noteworthy. First of all, we notice here that the prayer was Godward. Luke says it was made to God. God alone is to be worshipped, and a special part of his worship is prayer. Now, the church then prayed neither to saints, nor to angels, nor to any other creature. They prayed to God. And if you and I are going to pray, we address our prayers to the Lord. And you might think that's far too basic for me to mention. But you'd be surprised how many people get this wrong. There must be a conscious approach to the one true and living God. When prayer is offered, it has to be offered to no one else but him. I think Jesus implies this. He says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. In prayer, we normally address the Father. Now, you can pray to the Son and you can pray to the Spirit. But ordinarily, we pray to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. And His name has to be hallowed. 
that must be revered, treated with the utmost respect. Our catechism teaches us that we are to pray with an awful apprehension of the majesty of God and deep sense of our own unworthiness, necessities, and sins. How often do we do that? When we pray, as we did this morning, we are coming before the infinite and eternal judge. And think of the distinct privilege it is then to address that judge, that deity, as Father. You know, it's one thing to address him as God, Almighty, Master. It's another thing entirely to address him as Father. It's a term of intimacy, of filial reverence and childlike affection. And who would have thought that sinful creatures could speak like that to the Creator? But since he adopted us in Christ as children, we have the freedom and the privilege to come before him as a son and a daughter. It's one reason for the preface to the Lord's Prayer, our Father, to focus our attention upon God, because too often I rush into my prayers loaded with a string of petitions. Isn't that right? There's very little thought given to the majesty of the one whom I'm addressing. It helps me, as Jesus taught, to pause long enough to realize that I'm talking to the great creator and judge. And also we pray to him because he's the only one who can search your heart. He can distinguish between prayers that are phony and those that are sincere. When the church petitioned God to choose a replacement for Judas Iscariot, it says in Acts 1, they prayed and said, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you've chosen. So the God to whom we pray knows our hearts. We're in his hand. We're under his eye. And he loves to be entreated by Christians who pray with a sincere heart. And in addition, we pray to God alone because he's the only one who has authority to forgive our sins in Christ. That's crucial. It's critical because he will not listen to the prayer of an unpardoned sinner. I hope you understand that. Proverbs 15.29 says this, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. So as to his essence, God is equally near to all, to believer and unbeliever alike. But as to his favor, God is far from the wicked. He rejects the prayer of the unbeliever. And you might think that's harsh, but it's not my teaching. It's scripture. There is no fellowship between Christ and Belial. The distance is infinite, and the only petition of an unbeliever that God will ever hear is that of repentance. But, oh, he is near to forgiven sinners, and he will listen to their prayers. Jesus said, pray then like this, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So in Jesus' name, we ask mercy for his sake, and God hears us. So first of all, it's Godward. 
But then secondly, their prayer was earnest. In other words, they made their petitions with intense desire. That word earnest is derived from the Greek verb that means to stretch. It's a wonderfully expressive term. Their souls were stretching with desire. Their prayers came burning hot from a zealous heart and stretching soul. And it's the kind of fervent prayer that James says availeth much. Indeed, as we'll see, God answered their prayer. Thomas Watson, in his typical way, says, the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. And he's right. That word earnestly was used of Jesus when he prayed in Gethsemane. It says, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. My friends, that's earnest prayer. Never was there a prayer more earnest than that one. So earnest and so agonizing was his desire that blood began to ooze from his pores. That's earnest prayer. And if that is any indication of acceptable prayer, then I wonder why prayers aren't answered today. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Those believers praying for Peter were fervent. And how often do I offer my prayers with very little thought and far less heart? I am continually humbled by just how sluggish I can be in prayer. There's my prayer card, as Elder Van Drunen taught me. There's adoration and confession and thanksgiving and supplication, acts. Everything seems biblical. I'm in a quiet place. There are no interruptions. I have all the advantages. But the problem has to do with my heart. I'm sluggish, and I'm distracted, and I'm adverse for some reason to bending the knee and bowing the head. And it's so easy to get into a rut and thoughtlessly recite religious words. And on those occasions, I am no better than the superstitious unbelievers of whom Jesus said, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. I'm so tempted to simply mouth my prayers as if my words are enough. John Preston says, the Lord takes our prayers not by number, but by weight. Are they weighty? Are they fervent? Are they earnest? You see, Scripture teaches that prayer must have both light and heat, mind and heart. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. We're not talking about volume here. We're talking about strength and intensity. You can pray quietly and internally and still be in blood earnest. 
When Hannah prayed for a son, her lips moved, but there was no sound. She was praying earnestly in her heart, and Eli thought she was drunk. And she told him that she had been pouring out her soul before the Lord. And I have to be honest with you, prayer is a difficult task. (laughs) And this is partly because of the opposition against it. You've got the world and the flesh and the devil posing a serious threat to your prayers. And that's why the inward work of the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential to it. We're told that prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God in the name of Christ by the help of his Spirit. Because so intense is the opposition that without the Holy Spirit, there would be no prayer. We are no match for any one of those threats, let alone all three. And only insofar as the Holy Spirit enables you and I will we ever be earnest, ever. So one of our prayers ought to be for prayer. (laughs) We pray for prayer. Pray that God's indwelling Spirit would help our weaknesses. This is what Paul tells us in Romans 8. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. In humility, we should acknowledge our absolute dependence upon Him. So the prayer was Godward, and the prayer was earnest, and third, the prayer was intercessory. These last two points are quicker. It says they made earnest prayer for Peter. Primary, of course, was the glory of God, but their secondary focus was the welfare of their brother. In saying, our Father, we're taught to pray with and for one another. That's how we're taught to pray. So God invites us to plead with him on behalf of our brethren and our neighbors. Your next-door neighbor should be the object of your prayers. If they're unbelievers, Lord, convert them. If they're believers, Lord, confirm them. Build them up. Intercession is a priestly function which Jesus never stops doing. So in praying for others, we follow the example of Christ himself. And those early Christians, they asked the Lord to defeat the forces of evil and Herod's plan to execute Peter because they realized that apart from divine intervention, all was lost. The fear was that with Stephen and James both gone, Peter's loss would be too great for the church. So earnest prayer was made for Peter's life and his freedom and his well-being. They had no worldly weapons. They had no friends at court. They had no riches to bribe any of the officials. But there was a God in heaven who reigns supreme even over kings, and he stands ever ready to be entreated and to intervene on behalf of the saints. So the early Christians went before the throne of grace out of concern for their fellow believer, because humanly speaking, there was no hope for Peter whatsoever. I mean, come on. He's within an iron gate, he's inside stone walls, he's chained to Roman soldiers. And so they might have said to themselves, if only we had someone of influence to plead with King Herod. But we're poor. 
We're beggars. And if that kind of disposition had prevailed, Peter might have lost his head. But the early church went to one who had great influence with Herod. He could get him to change his mind if he wanted to. He could get Peter released because the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Just like in Ukraine. Just like in Russia. The Lord can do what he wants with anybody he pleases. That's why we pray. And so the Christians there knelt down and prayed and got to the very heart of God and what a privilege it is to perform the priestly duty of intercession. We imitate the example of Jesus Christ, our high priest, the one who is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Because he always lives to make intercession for them. That's why we're saved. It's not just his work on the cross, although that's glorious. But he takes the merit of that into heaven and he pleads it on our behalf. And he saves us to the uttermost. He appears constantly before the Father in the merit of his obedience and his sacrifice on earth. And he declares to have his merit applied to you. That's our only hope. So it was Godward, it was earnest, it was intercessory, and finally it was corporate. It was made to God by the church, a concerted effort, not by individuals, but by the collective. United prayers, it was a group effort, not by solitary saints, not by a group of good saints. They were made to God by the church, by Christ's bride, praying. And there was agreement in their minds and solidarity in their hearts and unity in their purpose. And that brings a smile to God's face. I can say that because of what God declared about corporate worship in Psalm 87. You may have heard this before. I'm quoting the Lord here. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Well, now, wait a minute. The dwelling places of Jacob are Israel. Why the gates of Zion? What's so special about that? Well, because he loves Jerusalem more than Beersheba because that's where corporate worship is. It was there in Zion that his people gathered corporately to pray. That's where he met with his people. That's where he received his worship. That's where he gave the blessing. The Lord Jesus himself, I believe, teaches this, the importance of this, when he says, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Isn't that an encouragement to pray together? God is ready to answer the church's prayers. We don't seek him in vain. You know, for, about 14 years ago, I mean, Ray will have to correct me on this, 14 or 15 years ago, we circled up, we joined hands in a little place in Twinsburg, and we prayed that God would lead us to a place to worship of our own. Within a year, we started sharing this building with Echo, and then they sold it to us in answer to the church's prayer. That's one small example, but it's true. 
And the early church recognized their dependence on God, their need for his spirit, and they prayed. And I have to agree with Mark Guy Pierce, who said that the prayer meeting, the prayer meeting is the barometer of the church and points us to showers of blessings or to seasons of drought. May God enable us to have the same recognition. God loves to hear his children pray individually, but he loves it even more when they pray together. Is the church not the very bride of God's dear son who died for her? If God gave his beloved son for the church, will he not delight in her prayers? Will he not delight to hear the concerted efforts before his throne of grace and to answer on behalf of his son? So let's rejoice in the privilege to pray earnestly to God for one another as the church. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you cognizant of our utter dependence upon you and the privilege that we enjoy in addressing you not only as our God, but as our Father. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who even now stands in your presence interceding for us. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who fills our hearts and enables us to seek your face in prayer. Please receive our praise, for we do offer it gratefully and with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.